1: Animale Good afternoon. My name's Roy Taylor and welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to waves. We are a radio programme dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and importantly, appreciation. Please excuse the occasional uh, mix-up with the computer system today because I didn't get an early enough night to be doing a radio show live. But we'll have a go. This is 3CR. We are broadcasting from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are also available on the 3CR and Freedom of Species podcast websites. That's 3cr.org.au and freedomofspecies.org. All our previous podcasts are available on iTunes. It is a simple matter to go on iTunes, uh, search for Freedom of Species and then subscribe to us. Now, A few weeks ago, we had the 3CR Radiothon, and I would like to personally and, if I may, on behalf of the rest of the team, thank all the people who pledged to our Radiothon. The Radiothon is one of the principal ways by which 3CR maintains its presence on Earth. We are radio by the people for the people, and that requires two things. It requires people to come on Earth and present show like this, but it requires also support from the community. And we have had lots of support over the last few years, and we may have got a little bit complacent this year. We may we rested on our laurels, because we haven't made our Radiothon target, which I believe was $1,600. You want to hear about what's going on with the Animal Justice Party? You come to Freedom of Species because you won't hear it on the ABC, and you're not likely to hear it in the Herald Sun except for some biased rubbish. And if you're able to support Freedom of Species, please could I ask you to donate. What you have to do is phone 3CR during the week. If you could, phone in and pledge to the radio thumb. We really do need your support. We really do need you to support us. And to do that, please phone 3CR. The phone number is 94198377. I'll say it again. The number that you need is 94198377. Mention Freedom of Species so that 3CR know it's a donation for this show.
0: There's Lawrence Pope, Victorian Advocates for Animals. You know, it doesn't matter where I am, around Australia or across the globe, people ask me the same question. Why don't we have programs like 3CR's Freedom of Species? Why don't we have independent radio? Not radio that's a puppet of the millionaires and the billionaires, but radio that reflects the real concerns of people like you. The very salt of this great country. From Warnham Bull to One Thaggy, from Malakuta to Cootamundra, 3CR, they're kind to cats, they're for the bats. That's independent radio. That's freedom of species, not the enslavement of species. I said the freedom of species. You know what to do. Donate to independent radio and warm your heart while you're cooling the planet. This is Lawrence Pope for Victorian
1: Advocates for Animals and 3CR wishing your species all the best. Now, in today's show, I am very happy to be presenting an interview that I I did earlier in the week with Dr. Jonathan Balcom. He's the director of Animal Sentience at the Humane Society Institute for Science and Policy, and he's the author of a number of books, including Second Nature, Pleasurable Kingdom, and the newly released What a Fish Knows. He has three biology degrees, including a PhD in ethology from the University of Tennessee, where he studied communication in bats. So I caught up with Jonathan via Skype earlier in the week. How would you describe your book?
0: I would call it a broad examination of the inner lives of fishes. That is to say, all the vertebrates that live beneath the waves, beneath the ocean or freshwater surface. So it includes uh, an examination of how they perceive the world, how they think, the kinds of emotions they have, their social lives, their sex lives and uh, how they can be virtuous or not so virtuous and then I close with sort of big picture implications
1: about our evolving relationship to them. Could you tell listeners how you got involved in examining this this issue and some of your background?
0: I've always been fascinated by animals from my earliest memory and so it was only a matter of time before I realized that being a biologist might be a good calling for me. And by the time I was entering grad school, I I knew that animal behavior was the best focus. Uh, That's more academically known as the field of ethology. And um, so I studied animals for three degrees, an undergraduate, a a master's degree, and a PhD. And uh, by that time, by the time I finished the PhD, I knew that I wanted to take my skills and work to protect animals. So my most of my 25 years, hence, uh, has been devoted to, through writing and speaking, to um, improving our appreciation for other animals' lives. And uh, the way I mostly do that, and this book on fishes is no exception, is to examine the science and to leverage that information into something that is accessible to the lay reader or the lay listener, the non-scientist. And so this book, What a Fish Knows, is a culmination of four and a half years' research into what the science now shows about the rich lives of fishes, combined with stories, because people like stories. Science can reach the brain, but stories can reach the heart. And uh, so I I solicited and collected some of the best and most credible stories that people wanted to share with me, and I've, I've sprinkled those throughout the book. Tell me more well i mentioned social lives let's start there i mean uh, some fishes lead largely solitary lives but many many species uh, live social lives and uh, studies find that they recognize each other as individuals Um, fishes make a lot of sounds even though we don't typically hear them they don't vocalize with the same apparatus that we do but they have various means and mechanisms uh, grinding teeth and bones and rubbing their swim bladders, etc., to make sounds underwater. They communicate by chemicals, uh, which is to say smell. They uh, taste things. They have preferences. They have preferred shoalmates. Uh, they do have sex lives. Uh, they don't just have reproductive episodes. Um, they can cooperate. They can communicate. They can communicate in some sophisticated ways, such as Uh, What we might call referential signaling, that is to say, uh, a gesture or movement that uh, is conveying information that may be separated in time and space. We can elaborate on that. They have mutualism, such as the cleaner client mutualism, where client, so-called client fishes of various species line up to wait their turn to be serviced by cleaner fishes on reefs who make a living by plucking parasites and algae and sloughing skin and what have you from the client's bodies the clients get a spa treatment and the cleaners get food so it's a classic mutualism but it's also a very complex one that involves sometimes deception record keeping uh, audience effects i discuss in my book various kinds of cognitions such as how fishes can learn by observing others uh, tool uses planning uh, memory including long-term memory and mental mapping some kinds of memories that are that probably exceed our own abilities problem solving and innovation so the list goes on and I, and I and I don't just obviously in a in a 300 page book I don't just mention these things and then move on I I, I provide examples of studies that, that that illustrate these capacities
1: you mentioned referential communication could you give examples to explain what you mean by that
0: yeah the the best known example at this point is um an inter- an interaction a relationship between two different species on the reef. These are both large predatory species one is a grouper. Um, this is a large, chunky fishes of various species, and the other is moray eels, which also occur in various species. And I think most of the research to date has been done in the Red Sea. And uh, you can actually watch videos on YouTube of this behavior. Groupers recruit moray eels to hunt with them by doing swimming up to the moray eel and performing either a head shake or a full body shimmy. And essentially, it appears to translate to: I'm hungry. I'm going to go feed. Are you going to come with? Would you like to come with me? And if the moray is in the mood, they swim off like a couple of uh, characters out of a Disney film, and they head off over the reef together. And uh, if they target a smaller fish that they're interested in eating, they pursue it. And if that fish escapes into the reef, the moray being a long, slender fish, a little bit like the ferret of the oceans, can pursue that fish into the nooks and crannies and perhaps catch it, but if the fish escapes into the open water, well, you can guess who's waiting uh, at the other end to, um, to eat that fish. That's the grouper, and studies show that um, when they hunt together, their hunting success is higher per capita than if they hunt individually. Re- groupers will also recruit mores from a distance. Um, if they know a more is nearby and they've seen a fish swim into a cranny, they will point their body towards the hidden prey for upwards of 23 minutes, uh, hoping that the moray will come over. They'll also sometimes swim over to the eel and do the short shake or shimmy and, tr- and, tr- and sometimes lead the moray back to the site. So these are examples of referential signaling because they're referring to an object that may be out of view um, and perhaps a future event, as in catching and eating that fish, And that's considered by biologists to be a pretty sophisticated example of communication. And the fact that it's happening interspecies between two different species makes it all the more impressive.
1: And this is interesting with regards to human intelligence, because it's only a certain age that children have the ability to understand that uh, items continue the concept of uh, conservation. Yeah, I think you're referring to uh,
0: object permanence, where... Something disappears out of view. There's a, a certain age before which infant humans will not know, not grasp that that thing still exists. Uh, but studies of baby chicks and, um, and, and fishes, uh, and that you, 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 you correctly point out this, this is a good example of that where these animals are consciously aware that there's that something is there even though it's out of view. And there's been some other studies sh- showing that in different contexts.
1: Uh, so fish are having um, demonstrated intelligence, an aspect of intelligence that young children don't have, which is very surprising.
0: There's another study I, I describe in the in the book in which scientists presented uh, fishes with um, two color, two different colored plates with food. One, uh, the blue the blue plate, the food uh, remained on the plate, but if it was a pink plate, the food and the plate were soon removed a couple of minutes after they were first presented. And the, the challenge, which sounds pretty simple, was simply to see if these animals would learn to eat, eat from the from the pink plate first, knowing that the pink plate was ephemeral, that it was going to be taken away, and then eat from the blue plate, plate second, which is the logical choice. And indeed, after a number of trials, they, they cottoned on to the pattern and they they fed, they would feed routinely from the pink plate first. Interestingly, um, great apes and monkeys who were tested in the same type of setup, obviously it had to be set up a little bit differently because it was on dry land rather than underwater. They, uh, failed this test for, um, after a hundred trials, only, only uh, one or two chimps were successfully doing it, orangutans and capuchin monkeys were not. One can speculate what's going on with that. There's any number of reasons to possibly explain why the Great apes did less well than the fishes did. The fishes in this case were cleaner fish who have to keep track of things on the reef, um, clients and who visited when and where and how long ago, which may explain why they were quite relatively good at it. But it's it's sobering to realize that, and it's, it's a really important um, reminder that uh, that many people are not really aware of with 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 intelligence is that intelligence manifests in different ways, and animals tend to be good at what's useful to them. And uh, so that I thought was a very revealing study that compared fishes favorably to the vaunted um, great apes.
1: With regards to the grouper and the mores, that's very interesting. It's interspecies communication uh, rather than within the own, their own species. Quite remarkable. Indeed. Uh, Now, obviously, you can read in a evolutionary advantage for that kind of communication. Is there communication within the species as well? Plenty.
0: Um, I guess I could give you one example: Uh, face recognition um, in um, in our in. Ambon damsel fishes is one interesting e- example because it, it it happens covertly these These fishes uh, recognize each other individually, but it's only um they have these face patterns that are only visible under ultraviolet light, which most of their enemies uh, predators cannot see so they're able to um, not compromise their normal uh, camouflaged appearance and yet for themselves they can recognize each other's faces very easily because they have this um this different um, visual bandwidth that they're able to uh, recognize each other on. That's that's something uh, in the in the realm of v- visual communication. Um, certainly uh, smells, uh, I mentioned chemical communication before. A number of species have a, what's called a fear chemical. It's actually uh, got a German word, Schreckstoff, which means scary stuff, I believe, is, is what the translation is. And that was discovered in the 1930s. And it's a very useful communication cue that fishes share with each other. Um, when somebody is hurt or scared, they release this chemical and it signals to other fishes that to be on the alert. So it's sort of um, a little bit like a fire alarm, I guess. It has a broad benefit to others who are swimming nearby.
1: Is this across species or is it just a a small number of species that have this uh, chemical signaling, do you know? Yes to both questions. It does happen across species and... um,
0: there are a number of species that release this chemical probably thousands of species actually the group of fishes that have this capacity is a very wide very diverse group um but yes it does seem to have a blanket benefit um, that isn't re- limited to one species or another studies show that um receivers who are smelling this chemical are very perceptive uh, the chemical contains can contain a lot of information um, they also fishes also can can divine and figure out what their prey what their predators have been eating, so if there's a pike or a salmon nearby, um, uh, they can tell from the uh, excretions of the pike or salmon that that pike has been eating other members of our kind or has not been eating other members of our kind and if the if it's the latter, they're much more relaxed and less aversive towards the pike if um if you're a, a little Molly and Mollys have been on the pike menu, then the Mollies are going to be aware of that, and they're going to keep a broader, a greater distance than if the pike hasn't been eating mollies. I hope that made sense.
1: That, I, I guess that isn't communication, but it's certainly a level, level of intelligence or recognition that we don't typically credit fish with.
0: Yeah, it's, it's not communication in the sense of a deliberate signal, but it is certainly, uh, yeah, it's information uh, that's available. It's being used in a pretty sophisticated way.
1: Now, I find the entire field of the cleaner fish quite remarkable. Could you tell listeners about the cleaner fish and then give some background to the research of that? Sure. There, there's a number of different species of, of marine creatures, not just fishes
0: either, Some in some cases prawns and shrimp. Uh, will engage in cleaning, Uh, but it's certainly very well known from cleaner fishes, in particular the blue striped cleaner wrasse and some of the other cleaner wrasses, and there have been well over a hundred, if not several hundred, uh, scholarly papers and studies published on this over the last few decades. And what these creatures do is they, um, they make a living by removing parasites and such, as I mentioned earlier, from cl- so-called client fishes. Uh, there are well over a hundred known clients on a reef that will come to these cleaning stations where one, two, or even a trio of cleaners will work as a team. And, uh, they, the clients cooperate with them. They open their mouths and allow the little cleaners to swim in. Sometimes the cleaners are, Hundreds of times smaller than the clients. Clients can even be large sharks and yet the sharks or whoever is the client never never chomp down and eat the cleaners, um, presumably because it's a business relationship and it's just not good business to each your business partner. And the cleaners swim in and out of the gills and pluck away and sometimes even take breaks to briefly um, provide caresses on the skin of the client by fluttering their pectoral fins. Uh, it seems to be a way to curry favor or to let the client know that, hey, you know, we give you good service here. You might want to come back to us. That's relevant because the quality of the service that cleaners give varies depending on Who's watching? Careful observational studies find that cleaners tend to do a better job if they have a, an audience. Why is that? Well, because clients who know that the cleaners do a good job are more inclined to stay in the queue and or return later. And since it is a survival game, it's, it, it's a business, it's a, it's a, it's life or death. I mean, these cleaners are not working on a cutting edge of life or death, but it is their employment. It is their living to get the food. And so it behooves them to do good. Work. If they don't have an audience, they're more likely to, for instance, do what's called mucus nipping, which is when they remove a mote of mucus off the um, skin of their client. Uh, you, you, most of us are familiar with that slippery feel of a fish. Well, that's a, an, an outer layer of mucus that protects them. It turns out that mucus is quite palatable to the cleaners and quite nutritious, and they prefer it if they can get up, get away with it. But it does come at a cost because it causes clients to think twice about returning in future. Studies also show that clients actually keep tabs, they keep accounts, uh, they do what's called image scoring, they have a cumulative. Uh, Impression of the quality of a particular cleaner and they're more or less likely to return to that cleaning station in the future based on that rating. So if you really, you know, that's just some of what's been discovered about this. You can see it's a pretty complex relationship that requires quite a bit of uh, cognitive uh, skill. At
1: each cleaning station, there are a number of different cleaners, yes? It can be
0: one, but it's often two, three or even more.
1: Okay, so the, does the cleaner itself get the reputation, or is it the cleaning station?
0: Uh, that's a great question. There may actually be some papers on that. I've not seen them, if that's the case. What I do, what I do remember reading is that whereas clean, uh, clients <laughs> recognize cleaners um, and recognize particular cleaning stations and remember the locations, the cleaners... Uh, you know i may have that backwards i need to revisit the literature what i do know is that it's it's thought that cleaners do recognize uh, dozens of clients individually and one of the reasons why they're probably able to do that is because it helps them to know how long it's been since they last serviced a cleaner a client excuse me because a client who hasn't been back for a long time may be worthy of special treatment because they may have uh, you know want to bring them back into the fold so to speak or it could be because they've been away for a long time they have a bigger parasite load so there's more to clean clean off so there's some reasons why we may expect and by the way this goes back to the pink plate blue plate study i mentioned earlier the subjects in that study the fish subjects were cleaner fishes and you can see why they might be very good at tracking the relative permanency of food on a different color plate because they need to be very good at tracking how long it's been since the last client came. So, yes, um, there's definitely, um, I suspect that cleaning stations are also something that, that clients are aware of, not just cleaners. And the clients queue up as well. This is what I've read. I have to admit I I have snorkeled on reefs and I've seen cleaners and clients. I haven't exactly seen a queue, and perhaps that word is a bit strong. Um, It may not be in the form of a line, but uh, what I've read from those who have spent many uh, hundreds of hours watching these, they will talk about um, clients waiting their turn. Uh, apparently, being aware of what the order of arrivals was, um, I'd like to read more about that because I think that that also says a lot about the cognitive skill of these animals. If they are quite aware about where they are in the queue, well, and we know we know as humans that it's pretty important not to step out of line, someone's going to get pissed off. <laughs> so I suspect that kind of dynamic may be happening with them as
1: well. And the cleaner fish themselves don't get predated at these stations.
0: I don't know if there's a single observation ever of a client eating a cleaner, except possibly uh, if the cleaner did something that they really shouldn't have. I don't know if mucus nipping is bad enough. There are um, t- imposters who mimic cum- cleaner fishes, such as the sawtooth blenny, as an example. They look just like s- a blue striped uh, cleaner wrasses. Uh, but they're different. They're a different species, and they await the right opportunity. They they pretend to be cleaners, and then they'll grab a, a nip a bite off a piece of fin, and then quickly swim away. That you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that occasionally results in a successful capture by a, a very angry client, who uh, chases them and catches them. So it's a risky thing to do for the for the blenny, but um, that is something they're known to do.
1: Hello, you're listening to Freedom of Species, animal activism on the airwaves. And we're halfway through an interview that I did earlier in the week with Dr. Jonathan Balcom about his book, What a Fish Knows, which is a fascinating subject. And we're going to go back to that interview with Jonathan Balcom now. Before we do, I'd just like to request anyone that missed my pleading at the start of the show um, to please donate to the 3CR Radio Radiothon. Freedom of Species has not made its target this year. Perhaps due to our complacency because of people who have been very generous in previous years, unfortunately, we're now in a little bit of a pickle. So, please, if you'd like to, and you're able to, could you please phone in to 3CR during the week on nine four one nine eight three double seven and make a donation to keep 3CR on air so that 3CR is there, so that freedom of species can be here promoting animal advocacy on the airwaves. That number again, nine four one nine eight three double seven. We rely on your donations to keep this show on air. And we'll go back to that interview now with Dr. Jonathan Balcom. So let's talk about learning.
0: A nice example of learning is the observational learning that happens in archer fishes. I think it's particularly impressive because it happens in the absence of personal experience. What these the reason they're called archerfish is, bec- is because they um, they make a living by well they feed underwater a lot of the time but if the opportunity arises they will shoot water from their mouths they have tube-shaped mouths and they've evolved this marvelous ability to shoot a stream of water a narrow stream up to 10 feet through the air very accurately uh, it could be at a leaf to knock an insect off who's on a leaf or it could be at an insect a dragonfly or a fly who's flying by and uh, with practice, and that's a key phrase, with practice, they become adept at uh, catching uh, prey, targeting prey this way. They use different methods. They may use um, um, predictive t- targeting where they shoot the stream ahead of the flying insect so that by the time the insect gets there, the stream of water is there to hit it, sort of like a quarterback or, or a soccer player making a pass of, towards a running target. Or if the uh, prey is closer, they rotate their bodies in a turn and shoot fashion, so that the stream of water is, is tracking the movement of the prey. But what's cool is, uh, in addition to that, is is how they learn this. Studies show that naive young archerfishes who have no skill at doing this and can't even hit something that's that's moving at a half a second, half an inch a second, which is very slow. If you then give them the opportunity to observe in this in the published study I read, they they, they allow them to observe, observe a thousand um, firing attempts by experienced adults, and then after having had that sort of apprenticeship period of just observe, observing this behavior, when you give those naive youngsters the opportunity to then hunt again um, and have a tr- have a try, they're much more skilled at doing it than they were right before they had that opportunity to observe. So it's a case of observational learning and uh, you could argue it's a case of perspective taking. They're able to somehow sort out in their brains what works just by watching how it works for others. And I think that's a pretty remarkable uh, cognitive ability.
1: One aspect of human cognition is the ability to appreciate that someone else has a mind of their own and a particular perspective of their own. And that is termed a theory of mind. Has there ever been any studies that show that fish have a theory of mind?
0: There was an article published a few months ago, subsequent to my book coming out, so I I, I don't describe this in the book, that um, was suggestive that giant manta rays... Um, these are the largest rays in the world. They're related to sharks, and uh, they happen to have the largest brain of all fish species. Uh, the giant manta rays uh, look like they might be able to recognize themselves in a mirror. Uh, this was a captive study only involving two rays, so it was a very small sample, and it uh, it didn't uh, it didn't claim self recognition in manta rays. What it did claim was that these these creatures. Uh, may be capable of that, and and you know, hopefully, we'll be able to demonstrate that in future. But the, the it was based on the way that the rays behaved when they swam by an, a large mirror that was uh, installed in their captive tank. They behaved in a way that suggested that they recognized that what they were seeing in the mirror was not another ray, but it was in fact um, themselves. Uh, too preliminary to say whether or not. They are. They were actually recognizing recognizing is, is the reflection as themselves. The definitive test of that is a, the, the mark study, where you put a mark somewhere on their body that they cannot see on themselves, but they will be able to see if they see their reflection and to see how they respond to the mark. They tried that, but the mark didn't stay on. They they weren't using the right materials, I guess. So tentative, but if they find that um, these rays are do have what looks to be self recognition which the, this mirror mark test is considered a pretty rigorous test of that then that would suggest also that we're talking about an animal um who might have perspective taking abilities a level of cognition where they can pu- put themselves in another fish's place uh, which the by the way the archer fishes may indeed be doing when they learn to uh, target
1: things through observational learning how remarkable it's uh... Really is uh, a different view on fish than I, for one, uh, had appreciated until now. And Uh, me, yes. When I
0: went into this, I I wasn't aware of. I was aware of uh, an emerging literature on on fish cognition and behavior. Uh, But a lot. One of the joys of writing the book, Roy, was that. I, I delved into the literature and I dug up and found uh, stuff that I didn't know existed. And uh, it was uh, really fun to um, massage it into a, a frame that hopefully uh, people can relate to.
1: If anything, this sounds like an, a relatively young area of research.
0: Some of it is not so young. Some, there were the, some of the studies uh, go back to the 20s even. maybe even, yeah, There was one study I cite from 1908. but that's exceptional. The great bulk of the research I cite... Uh, is published since, uh, I would say, 2000, year 2000.
1: So you've mentioned lots of things that I still want to uh, discuss with you. Um, one is tool usage. Uh, tell me more about this.
0: Well, you know, as we open our minds and we're more open to animals having capacities now than we were open to through much of the 20th century when it was actually taboo to ask questions about animal cognition and emotion and what have you, uh, lo and behold, we discover that... Uh, the animals, many more animals, have, for instance, tool use than uh, we used to think. Um, there was a paper published last year that demonst- showing uh, tool use in crocodilians, where they float sticks on their snouts and they swim to areas where herons are having building their nests and raising their young overhead. And, uh, then they float below the, they sink below the surface with the sticks floating above them and, uh, they, the sticks act as lures that the herons fly down to grab uh, to make their nests and, uh, if you have a morbid enough mind you can complete the story. Similarly in, in fishes, well they don't do that, but, uh, and they also don't use hammers and nails because they don't have hands or, you know, they have, their limited anatomy, um, doesn't give them as many options for tool use, but they have mouths and they can blow water and they can push water around with their gill covers and with their tails and fins and such. They use water as a, as a form of tool, uh, a little bit like the archer fish using water as a projectile. Um, and, uh, you can watch videos now of, uh, tusk fishes and wrasses who blow water on the sand to uncover, say, a mollusk, a cockle shell or, or an oyster or what have you, and then picks that creature up in the mouth and swims in a way that suggests pre-suggest foresight and planning towards a particular rock that the fish then uses a series of well-timed releases and well-coordinated head flicks to smash the mollusk against the rock, Uh, to get at the inside, so essentially using the rock as an anvil. Um, That sequence of behaviors to me suggests the ability to plan, to have foresight, Um, and I think legitimately uh, it's an example of tool use and and scientists uh, have described it as such in the literature.
1: Very similar to the use of rocks by European thrushes to smash uh, snails apart, yeah?
0: You know that one I'm not familiar with um I do know that um Egyptian vultures have been smashing large eggs with rocks for some time and uh but that's yeah that's another example and very analogous behaviors It's just that we haven't generally thought that fishes would be doing it. And now we, you know, a part of this is that we have the technology. Uh, It's taken a lot longer to be able to observe fishes in their underwater realms than it is to observe things on dry land for obvious reasons. And the last century has seen advances in scuba technology and underwater filming that is is having a role in, probably has a major role in why we're now uncovering these uh, capacities that we were oblivious to before
1: a lot of the ocean is very inaccessible to us so there could well be remarkable behaviors that we're still not witness to i guess
0: the the ocean is a huge habitat in fact the abyss the deep ocean where light doesn't even penetrate is described as the largest habitat on earth and life is low density there for various reasons of being dark and cold but Far from barren, I mean, there's a lot of creatures down there, and uh, that's a prime example of a a vast habitat uh, about which we know almost nothing. But uh, yeah, even in the areas where light does penetrate, I suspect that what we know is a tiny, tiny fraction of what's going on. I I don't know how many species of fishes I describe in my book, but I doubt that it's many more than say, say, two or three hundred. And yet, there are over thirty-two thousand described species of fish. So, you know, that's just another reflection of how little,
1: relatively little, we still know. Earlier on, you mentioned memory, and you have mentioned facial recognition. I'd like you to talk about some aspects of the memory of fishes and how we know that they do remember.
0: Yeah, we still see, I've still seen advertisements uh, at airports that um, play off the old idea that a goldfish has a three-second memory, as if that's actually a valid conclusion, which scientist has repeatedly debunked. Um, one example, a nice little study done in Australia by Cullen Brown, uh, in which he took wild rainbow fishes and presented them with a situation. He put them in a tank and then had a net, uh, a sort of a a net that would cover the whole tank, and it was a, it was a mesh um, wall, that's the word I wanted, a mesh wall that would uh, he could move on pulleys from one end of the tank to the other, essentially squeezing the, the fishes in the tank against the one wall. They don't like that, of course, and they would love to get to the other side of the mesh before it kind of pins them against the wall. Uh, they had the option of uh, swimming through a tiny uh, hole in the middle of the mesh that was slightly larger than the mesh itself. Uh, the difference being that they could actually fit through the hole. And he presented them with five trials. And, um, by the fifth trial, the first trial, they were panicking and swimming around. And very few found the opening to swim through. But by the fifth trial, they were all swimming through it. And then he tested them 11 months later. They had no experience with that mesh wall in the intervening 11 months. And when he tested them on that very first trial after 11 months, it was like, it was like, it was like, it was as if it was trial number six it was as if they had not missed a beat that it was you know that only a second uh, only a minute had transpired between uh, the previous trial and the next trial instead of 11 months they remembered it right away whereas na- naive fishes who didn't have that experience who were placed in this tank situation it, they um, they would learn by observing the others but they they didn't know where to go at first so it was a nice little demonstration of long-term memory in a fish that only lives about three years in the wild. So we're talking about a third of their lifespan. They're remembering this one, this, well, five time event that happened almost a year ago. That's one of a number of examples of memory that we can look at in, in fishes. I describe them in the book.
1: And you also mentioned problem solving.
0: There was a study of stingrays. The, the, the example that comes to mind is involved a study of stingrays. It was a small study with just five individuals. I think three males and two females. And they were, but they were presented with. And, and by the way, let me just say, it's not. It's not that you know I, I'm cherry picking, and uh, there, there's no there's. Um, a bunch of studies showing that they don't that they fail to solve problems it 's just we're we 're just beginning to explore this stuff and so it 's the only study I know of and there, there may be others um, you know only a some only a fraction of the research has been done made it into my book. And I certainly never haven't seen all the studies done, um, but there's a dearth of studies at this stage of things like problem solving in in fishes. And I suspect uh, as more studies do look at it, um, there'll be more examples that come to light. But in the study of stingrays, uh, it found that they used innovative and creative ways, and different ways. I guess you could say um, idiosyncratic ways, different to the individual of of getting food out of a little tube plastic tube where it was hidden in um, they they had to either some of them created a, a current that blew the water away blew the food away from them out the other side and then swim around to get the to get it out others created a suction that pulled the food towards them and then when the researchers uh, upped the ante by putting a, a blocking mesh on one end so the food couldn't pass through that end uh, and the fishes had to swim to the far side to suck the food the food out. Um, they successfully did that. And that was considered to be uh, an uh, an impressive um, feat that uh, that we might not expect fishes to do. That is to sort of move away from the desired stimulus, the food. Uh, to perform a behavior to get access to it. So that's, that's the example of uh, problem solving that I'm aware of. I think what's most telling about that is that the different individuals use different methods to solve the problem. It shows flexibility and creativity.
1: Are there any fields that we've not talked about yet that you'd like to discuss? There's
0: a number of things, we we haven't talked about emotion so much. We talked more about cognition. Uh, uh, an example of a um, study of emotion that I like to uh, like to make people aware of is is one in which surgeon fishes were stressed by the researchers, and then they were given the opportunity to relieve stress by swimming up to a moving model uh, of a cleaner fish, actually which they would be familiar with, being caught in the wild from uh, the Great Barrier Reef. And uh, given that opportunity, they swam up and sidled up to this moving wand and got caresses, and it lowered their stress um, significantly, whereas stressed fishes in the control group, who only had access to a stationary wand, a stationary model of a cleaner fish that wasn't moving, they ignored it. It couldn't give them caresses, and they ignored it. they didn't swim up next to it. Um, so that to me says a lot about them it says a It says a fish um recognizes the difference between a moving wand and a stationary wand and has the wherewithal and the resources to take action to get stress relief when the opportunity is there by the way roy uh, that that kind of study I find poignant and sobering. Because the last chapter in my book, I talk about the pretty rapacious relationship we have with the fishes and how we catch and kill them in astronomical numbers, possibly into the trillions. Every year by catching them in nets and hauling them from the depths, they die by crushing, they die by uh, decompression, they die from uh, suffocation in air. Uh, You know, if a surgeon fish can get stressed by being uh, kept in a bucket of water for half an hour, Uh, I can only imagine how stressful and, for that matter, painful it is to die by those methods. And so there is a broader message of my book to um, heighten awareness of our need to have a different relationship with these creatures, a better relationship. And I don't tell readers what to do, but I do um, get them to try and connect the dots and think about how um, their personal lifestyle choices, what we eat, what we buy at the supermarket, affects these individuals.
1: Absolutely. I was going to... uh... Stay away from talking about the horrendous things that are done to fishes by humans, but I guess one can't begin to talk about this subject without addressing that.
0: Well, my mission as a biologist has always been to try and apply the knowledge to a better, to make the world a better place, and uh, in particular a better place for them. I, I do believe in that a better world for animals is a better world for humans as well. That uh, if we're more compassionate and caring um, to them, we're going to be more compassionate and caring across the board, including to each other. And let's face it, we have uh, lots of room for improvement in in, in within human interactions. So um, it's important to me that this book uh, address that relationship. Most of the book is about what we've been talking about. It's about the Fascinating uh, cornucopia of behaviors that, that fishes engage in, and their their interesting lives. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I I think it's really important to relate that to the bigger picture. And there's a lot we can be doing. And so the last chapter, um, the the epilogue of the book ends on a on a much more positive note. But it, I thought it was important to address things like aquaculture, ocean um pollution and and uh, the the fishing gear fishing methods and how it affects fishes and and um the beginnings of campaigns to end shark finning and that sort of thing uh i learned recently that a a shark in in uh, an area where shark watching and tourism is now happening uh, that a typical shark would be worth $108 for its meat and fins, and yet over the course of its lifetime, a value of $1.9 million if that fish is alive, if that shark is alive through ecotourism dollars. So that's a nice, very concrete example of how uh, the economy can benefit by having a more friendly relationship with these animals.
1: You have mentioned briefly um, emotional lives. Now, from the vegan perspective, at least, the vegan perspective i'm coming through i'm kind of influenced by the jeremy bentham quote of it's not whether or not they can think or whether or not they can talk but can they suffer um a bit of a poor paraphrase of jeremy bentham though but i guess from a vegan perspective our concern is not necessarily intelligence level but rather can these animals suffer can you give listeners a, a quick overview of what the research says about the ability for fish to suffer
0: yeah, it's an important question and there's uh, quite a bit of research on uh, pain in fishes
1: and uh, they
0: have the anatomy they have uh, nociceptors which are pain receptors that are sensitive to um, chemical as well as heat as well as mechanical types of insults so they have a diversity of cells, uh, of, of receptors, and they, of course, all feed into the nervous system, to the brain. And they affect behavior. Uh, these animals remember past bad experiences and tend to avoid them in future. Fishermen may talk about fishes who return to the hook, but there's also published studies who of fishes who... Um, avoid hooks for they remember bad experiences for years afterwards. So-called hook shyness. Um, but I think most telling uh, our, our studies are studies like one on zebrafishes where they um, avoided a barren part of their tank which was brightly lit uh, and instead swam in a enriched part of the, the tank uh, until the researchers um, dissolved. A painkiller in the barren part of the tank and in the meanwhile they'd injected these zebrafishes with either acid or uh, saline solution. Saline solution presumably not causing any lasting pain but the acid, if they can feel pain it's gonna, it's gonna be unpleasant and they're gonna want to relieve the pain and uh, they, the ones treated with acid swam over to the barren side of the tank when the painkiller was there, They soon learned they could get pain relief and only those ones not the ones injected with the saline So to me, that's a pretty elegant demonstration That uh, these creatures can feel pain and they once again have the wherewithal to remove it if you give them the opportunity One can always cavil that we can't know what a fish feels of course We cannot know I can't know what you're feeling in the ultimate sense. You can tell me but you could be lying Um it's of course more difficult with a different species, but heaven forbid we should be giving them the doubt, the benefit of the doubt when we have evidence like that.
1: Well, Jonathan, um, just tell listeners again the title of your book and where they can get hold of it.
0: Yeah, it's called the book is called What a Fish Knows: The Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins. And uh, I don't know about its availability in Australia yet, but it's available uh, worldwide and will be available in some foreign languages as well. And, of course, it is orderable online as both uh, the conventional paper book, but also as
1: an audio book and in, in the Kindle edition as well. So, uh, Anne, do you have a website yourself?
0: Yes, I do. It's my name. Uh, It's www.JonathanBalcom.com, and uh, there's a place to email me and contact me if people wish
1: to. That's great. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank you, Roy. Hello. You've been listening to an interview with Jonathan Balcom uh, about his book, What a Fish Knows.